Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. Well, the purpose of hosting this podcast is to provide better visibility and general awareness to topics in diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. It's frankly quite fun. Uh, It's fantastic to get the opportunity to not only listen to individuals' journeys, uh, but also hear how people in their own ways are approaching solving difficult problems with respect to diversity, equity, inclusion in healthcare. And it also gives the opportunity to catch up with uh, individuals later on in their career. You'll hear in this episode uh, an opportunity for me to catch up with an individual with whom I started, uh, we started our respective healthcare journeys uh, early in our undergraduate careers. But now uh, we all get to share in hearing how she not only uh, has addressed uh, issues with representation, um, health equity, and inclusivity in her ongoing work, but uh, is doing that on a scaled basis with a payer and within a state. And so I share with you the discussion with Dr. Lakshmi Emery, and I hope you all enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Welcome back to Crossing the Chasm, uh, a podcast focused on diversity, equity, inclusion, and healthcare. And this episode, I am joined by a fellow Dartmouth alum, uh, the d- illustrious Dr. <laughs> Lakshmi Emery, who is the uh, is the chief medical officer responsible for clinical operations, strategy, and programs of Aetna Better Health of Illinois, the largest of Aetna's Medicaid health plans. She has a passion for delivering innovative solutions to deal with complex health challenges, uh, and her focus is on improving the care of vulnerable vulnerable populations. She, as I already stated, is a graduate of Dartmouth College and uh, had received her medical degree and her master's of public health from the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Medicine and the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health. She completed a residency at the Rush Illinois Masonic Hospital in Chicago and is a board certified family physician. Welcome, Dr. Emery. So happy to have you here. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Nice to (laughs) finally be speaking with you. (laughs) Yeah, so we we joke. Well, no, no, no worries about patients. You've obviously got a ton going on. I was so proud to to see and realize that you had been recognized in a number of specific areas. Um, I, if I sat on this podcast and started telling you about like the fabulous stuff that Lakshmi has been involved in, she's a crane Chicago business, notable executives of color in healthcare. She's a Chicago defender, um, woman of excellence. Uh, I think you got another award like last week. Like I yes. stopped trying to keep up because I, it, it, oh, you've Lord. just been so much. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. And awards are nice, but, you know, it's not why we do what we do, I guess. Um, so, Well, tell us why you do, how'd you get here and why do you do what you do? 
Well, let's see. Okay, first of all, um, I'm originally from California, so I'm a little bit, um, you know, I'm a Midwesterner now. I guess I've lived here actually longer than I lived in California. And of course, I met you at Dartmouth on the way um, to this career, but um, originally went into medicine. As you said, I went to UIC uh, here in Chicago and um, decided during my medical training that I wanted to um, go into public health as well. So I actually did an MD and an MPH at the same time um, at UIC back, it seems like a million years ago. <laughs> but um, I practiced for many years as a primary care physician with um, a well-known group here and had a very large panel of mostly um, seniors, mostly a geriatric uh, panel, even though I'm family medicine. Um, and had a lot of, uh, you know, Medicare uh, patients, Medicare Advantage patients, um, and it was in in an underserved community. So I saw a lot, um, a lot of disease, a lot of chronic conditions. Uh, most of my patients had at least, you know, five or more um, chronic conditions. Um, and so, you know, with a large panel of, you know, about 3,000 patients to myself, it became um overwhelming. As I said, I learned a lot. I, I loved my patients. Um, I remember when I decided to leave clinical practice, you know, I had patients who would make an appointment just to come and cry and, you know, talk and mm -hmm. um, beg me to stay. And I was like, no, I have to, you know, move on. Um, it, it just, I felt that there was more to do and that what, you know, I was doing was sort of just limited. I didn't want to spend the rest of my career just seeing patients, although there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I could have done that. I could have spent um, the rest of my career doing that, but I felt the call to do more. And I was actually recruited to be the chief medical officer for a um, practice, a geriatrics practice um, out of Miami, uh, which is ChinMed, uh, and it was GenCare at Illinois. And so I was the chief medical officer for their Illinois market for many years. Um, as well. And so that was a, a, a little bit of a larger role in which I, I still saw patients. I still had a panel of patients, but I also supervised the um, six uh, clinics in their Illinois market um, and the physicians um, in that market as well. Um, and then finally, I was recruited away to uh, what was at the time Illini Care Health um, that was owned by Centene and that was later acquired by Aetna and became Aetna Better Health Illinois. So it's actually the same role. So I've been in the role for over four years now, um, but we were acquired and, um, you know, we're with a, a new uh, parent company now. So, um, and, and I really enjoy this role because I'm able to really effectuate the, the care of, you know, many more people. We have about 430,000 members now throughout the state of Illinois. And I'm on a daily basis, um, involved directly with, um, you know, the health of individual members, but also making decisions in terms of policy, um, in terms of population health programs, um, initiatives, quality programs, you know, that affect all 430 you know, members potentially, 30,000 members potentially. So, um, and that's that's sort of where I wanted to be. So people ask me, well, what do you want to do from here? I'm like, you know what? I like what I'm doing. I, I don't necessarily have aspirations to, to do more at this point. I really, you know, enjoy where I am now because I'm able to uh, make direct, you know, impacts into people's health and quality of life. So, I'm happy with it, you know, and I'm, this is what I, I really aimed to do for all those years, you know, in clinical practice. And so I'm, I'm just fulfilled every day.
Well, that is fantastic to hear uh, because being fulfilled is absolutely a critical part of uh, what we want to do individually. Uh, and it's wonderful that you can uh, really be so directly involved in so many uh, individuals care across uh, the entire state of Illinois. Uh, so this is a DEI podcast. Why is diversity, equity, inclusion important to you? Well, you know, and Greg, uh, you know, you probably share this. Part of the reason I went into medicine was because I saw inequities, you know, in my own life, you know, as a child, um, you know, I saw how I was treated or my family members were treated, you know, when it came to healthcare. Um, I recognized that it was not fair, that it wasn't um, uh, equal. You know, I felt that, um, you know, there were opportunities for um, more equity in healthcare, even as a child, you know, even growing up. Um, you know, I saw examples of that. Um, now, I had a, an uncle, a great uncle, who was a physician, and I saw the way he interacted with his patients in his office and the way he respected his patients. And, um, you know, I think that kind of shaped my vision of how healthcare could be, you know, even as a, a child. And, you know, of course, he was a role model for me. Um, and now we have actually six physicians in my family, and he was the first. So, um, you know, I think a lot of us really saw him as a role model and wanted to um, do more for, you know, our people in terms of, you know, Black and people of color um, through medicine. Um, an interesting story, and I don't know, Greg, if you know this story, but um, actually that side of my family, so my my maternal grandmother, and he was her younger brother, um, they were part of the Tulsa um, race riots or the Tulsa massacres, that sometimes called. Um, so their family escaped. Um, and, you know, as you know, that was um, happened over 100 years ago now, but it was um, the only time in American history where American citizens were bombed, firebombed from the air, you know, with aircraft. Um, and the whole Black Wall Street area of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Greenwood, was destroyed. Um, and my family had a store um, in that area. And fortunately, you know, they survived. Um, my great-grandfather actually helped um, member, members of the uh, community and neighbors whose homes were destroyed, whose businesses were destroyed, um, and sheltered a lot of those families after uh, that happened. And so I've always felt, you know, a, a responsibility to... I think to help others and that may, you know, it may be genetic, it may come through our, you know, family trauma, it may come through the stories we heard and, you know, the things that we were taught as children. Um, but I see health equity sort of as, as still an opportunity um, where we can really make a difference. You know, those of us who have gone into medicine can really um, make a difference. And I've had, um, opportunity even in Illinois to be at the table when certain decisions were uh, being made um, at the state level, you know, when it comes to um, requirements for implicit bias training, for um, licensing and relicensing of physicians and things like that. And to me, that's it's, it's exciting just to be a part of that and to be able to give voice to that and to um, support things like that. So, but health equity to me is, you know, really, really where the quality of healthcare and the opportunity for optimal health is is the same across all populations. You know, not with uh, not in regard to race, um, with regard to gender, um, gender preference. You know, where everyone has the same opportunity for optimal health. You know, for their optimal health. And so there are lots of ways that, um, as I said, we still have opportunity to improve that, and and we see that on a on a daily basis. And as a practicing physician, I saw that. Um, 
So even even like, for instance, things like uh, GFR, you know, the calculation of GFR. Right. So recently, yeah, recently um, there have been efforts to really change the way we look at that, you know. So <laughs> as you know, Greg, for uh, African-American patient, it was sort of thought, OK, well, there's going to be a little bit worse. Well, actually, no, it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be allowed to be a worse number. You know, that's hard to explain it. But um, so Anyway, I, I think every day we're seeing where where changes are being made, even BMI, you know, BMI is being looked at in terms of, you know, well, is this, you know, this was based on a, you know, white man in the 1940s, uh, the BMI chart, and we're still using it today. But is that accurate when we look at different populations, um, you know, uh, different cultures? Uh, and so people are, you know, banging their head trying to <laughs> be, yeah. uh, you know, 120, and maybe you're not supposed to be 120, you know, maybe your body make, makeup is different. And so things like that, you know, there are lots of examples in medicine where um, things have not been equitable and and especially like research where um, a lot of uh, research is based on, you know, again, a white population, it's not necessarily based on diverse populations and really does the research really apply to all populations? Maybe not, you know? So I, I'm really glad that we finally reached an era where we're examining that, we're questioning those things that we learned, you know, way back in medical school and um, things are changing. So. Yeah, no, there's there's so much to, to extract from what you stated. I, I think my three biggest takeaways. Number one are we discuss historical issues in their impact, you know, and, and people um, or a lot of people tend to want to dismiss that impact, but your, you know, your reflection on your family's direct involvement in the, the Tulsa massacre, it's, it's like having, it still has direct impacts on oh, yeah. like you and in terms of what's, you know, and uh, you as an individual and what's going on certainly within that community. I think the second piece that you brought up was, you, you're right, there are still so many other historical artifacts that we're still now addressing in healthcare. You mentioned, you know, um, EGFR and um, the glomerular, for our non-clinical folks, the, the right. glomerular filtration rate, as well as body mass index uh, measurements, um, that, that's the BMI, um, and how they're still having impact. But I think, you know, the part that I'm most excited about and part of the reason why we're here and having these conversations is we've, this, is where and while there's progress that has been made, we're in an era where like accepting these, you know, these historical realities and their impact is and admiring the problem, as I like to say, is no longer acceptable. It's really about what are we what are we doing? doing and the fact you know, that you're that, you're involved in doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought of an example. So um at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and Jay, you know, you mentioned you're a alum, a proud alum. Um, I actually went into a surgery, into a robotic surgery for, um, uh, let's see, was a kidney transplant. And so the surgeon who was actually, he was there when I was there, and he 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 says he remembers me. I doubt it, but anyway, he <laughs> says he remembers me. <laughs> but he was talking about the fact that they are doing surgery, um, you know, transplants on people who would otherwise probably not qualify because of their BMI. And most of these patients are happen to be black, you know, because there's it, it tends to be a higher BMI. And he said, you know, this is really an equity issue. You know, the fact that we're able to do robotic surgery and do transplants on a population of people who otherwise would not qualify, you know, who previously would not qualify is an equity issue. And so, you know, we're looking at the fact that um, robotic surgeries have less complications 
options. Um, you know, oftentimes they're more successful than open. Um, you know, this needs to be considered. You know, even though those surgeries may be more expensive, it, it's an equity issue. You know, if we're able to to do more of the transplants on people with higher BMI, you know, are we are we making the playing field, you know, more level? Aren't we giving people an opportunity to potentially live who otherwise would not? You not have lived, you know, I think that's worth the cost. So, you know, things like that go through my mind. And when I learn about them, I look at our policies, I look at, you know, well, what can we do? How can we, you know, make sure that we're, we're um, not, you know, denying people, um, you know, of robotic surgery because of the cost or things like that. Um, and so it's, I think it's, it's important that, again, we have these seats at the table because there may be more focus on more consideration to things like that um, than previously, you know, than previously when we didn't have these seats at the table. It's, it's funny that you, you bring that up because to me, you know, I'm, I'm not clinical, so I don't see patients don't think about their their weight or anything like that. So to, initially, I think BMI, oh, that's, I understand it cognitively, but it feels so like that's, oh, that doesn't, that's not every day. But then it was funny, it was last week I was having dinner with my neighbor and he mm. changed jobs and he had, to, he had to get physical and all that because he, he works in a refinery. And he mentioned that the doctor told him that he's technically he's obese because he's he's built like a linebacker. Um, right. He's he's Mexican American, but he's you know about like six one two fifty, and mm -hmm. but he's not like he he's you know works hard, is in great shape, but must you know be, right? on the BMI he just fits you know yeah. in that profile. And it, it's so funny because you bring that up now, it's like it hits a lot more at home realizing exactly. that you know, there are a lot of people out there that don't fit that box of like you said, with the BMI being created by a white person, you know, 80 years ago. Right. And based on a white person, yeah. and, you know, of a certain uh, gender. <laughs> so that's the other thing. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you mentioned policy a number of times and the fact mm -hmm. that you, that's something that you delve into is, are there particularly policies or policy initiatives that you would want to highlight and just sort of say, yeah, this is what I'm working on. And then, you know, not only what you're working on, why you're excited, and what you think the implications are? Well, so not so much policies, because I, I guess when I think about policies, I'm thinking of like prior authorization requirements and things like that. But um, in terms of population health initiatives, um, you know, maternal mortality is a huge one. So, you know, again, and this is something I mentioned, you know, when you said I got that award last week, um, I, I mentioned during my um, acceptance speech, you know, so a lot of people still don't realize that in the United States, African-American women have a mortality rate and a, a mortal morbidity rate that's similar to third world countries. So, you know, which is outrageous. And so I don't think it, that gets enough uh, press. You know, I think there are certain groups that are very focused on that. And, you know, we hear about it once in a while, but it's really um, something I think we need to grapple with. And, and one of the things that we look at um, at our health plan is, is our data surrounding that and looking at, um, you know, maternal uh, programs that we can uh, implement and launch to address a lot of this. So we're looking at things like virtual doula, you know, vendors, you know, programs uh, where there are apps that can be um, sort of like a, a, a sort of give the same services as a doula in terms of the support, you know, the pregnancy support um, that a lot of women need to avoid, you know, some of the problems um, and, and also to be educated on, you know, things to look for, things like blood pressure, you know, so we worry about preeclampsia, especially in Black women. Um, and so 
I think, you know, this, again, this is a great era because we have all these apps. We have all this access. You know, everybody has a phone in their hand and their face all day. You know, so we have a way to directly influence and directly educate people that we didn't have before. Um, and so we're trying to take advantage of that. We're trying to be very innovative and uh, figure out ways to um, educate and to um, affect population health, you know, through through things like technology. Um but I think, you know, another thing is that we need to um, really bring it out so that people are more aware, not just, um, you know, the mothers who it affects. But, you know, another thing, like here in Chicago, we have what's considered to be um, a maternity desert on the south side of Chicago. So in the past several years, um, multiple um, hospitals have closed the maternity ward, um, hospitals have closed. And so now a lot of women who especially live on the south um, side and live in the south suburbs have to travel long distances in order to get their uh, maternity care and which you know provides um, an obstacle you know is an obstacle to uh, prenatal care so I think you know it, it's there are things that are sort of in your face and then there are other things that you don't really think about until um, it becomes obvious and I think part of what we do at the health plan is is try to look at our own data to find the issue and to really address the issue, um, you know, straight on. What de what determines a maternity desert? I think I I know and, and have a general idea. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating, particularly because you're right, you get the 30,000 foot view of like, yeah, yeah, right. this is this is what it, it, it is. But what defines that? And how do people well, find out things about like that? Yeah, well, so, you know, the fact that all of these centers closed within the matter a matter of about two years, and this was right before the pandemic, um, literally there were about, and I'm trying to think now, five, about five um, centers that closed, either the hospital closed altogether or the maternity ward closed. And so now there are very few, um, I can think of, um, you know, Roseland Hospital, which is on the um, south side is still open, um, but they, you know, they're trying to um, get, money in order to update their facilities. Um, because the other thing is a lot of women, if they, you know, come and tour and they see it's an older facility, you know, they may not want to deliver there. So they may self-select and go elsewhere, you know, because right. they want something modern, they want something, you know, and who blame, you know, who can blame them? So, you know, so, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with um, geography, but, you know, they're, so in the state, you know, um, providers are required to be within certain communities and we're required as a health plan to make sure that people have access, but, you know, true access in terms of, um, you know, ease of uh, transportation, um, you know, there are women who have other children and so they would have to have someone, you know, have childcare in order to go to their visits. I mean, things like that, as, you know, basically SSDOH, um, so social determinants of health um, can affect, you know, whether someone goes to their prenatal visits or not. Um, so not only do we educate, you know, women about how important it is to go to the prenatal visits, but we also try to solve for things like that. So solve for transportation, solve for um, childcare issues, um, things that would keep them from, you know, going to their appointment. Um, but to answer your question about maternity desert, um, I know it's been, you know, in the media and in, in, you know, our circles and public health circles, it's sort of been dubbed that. I don't know what the actual you know, definition, how many miles, you know, from a right. center, certain number of people have to be. But I mean, just thinking about the geography, I mean, it definitely is a maternity desert in terms of, you know, people would have to travel 30 minutes or more um, in order to um, get, you know, the care they need in that terms of sounds, prenatal care. 
that sounds like a definition I understand, uh, which yeah. is, mm-hmm. which becomes pretty remarkable, especially when you're thinking that, um, yeah, when it's time to deliver a baby, it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of time to get the care that right. you need. And 30 minutes suddenly seems like a really long time, especially if you, to your point, don't necessarily have transportation or depending on public transportation. So a lot of challenges that, that go on with that. Um you're bringing up so many different things and aspects of of obviously health equity and, and bringing up your lens, particularly working for a health plan. Does I mean, is that a natural part of the health plan is looking at social determinants for its members yeah. uh, and the the and really equitable outcomes for its members? Oh, yes. And that's a requirement. You know, that's a state requirement, too. Um, so the state of Illinois um, is actually one of the leading states in terms of requiring health equity to be part of every single aspect, you know, of what we do on a daily basis, which is wonderful. Um, and they actually have, you know, five pillars um, that include uh, maternal uh, care, um, mental health, um, health equity is one of the pillars. Um, so it's it's really something that we talk with the state about frequently and that we um, demonstrate. You know, we show our innovative data um, analysis and and the way that we come up with, you know, our population health projects and the way that we uh, monitor them. You know, so we're looking at outcomes constantly and, and you know, uh, changing things and updating things and figuring out how if we're not getting the outcomes we want, you know what we need to change. So um, I think it's it's great. I mean, as I said, Illinois is is a leader uh, in terms of states um, requiring the health equity focus. And in fact, we have a new um, health equity director. That may be someone you want to talk to. <laughs> we I'll take um, it. <laughs> recently hired, yeah, a great um, health equity director. Um, and each of the five MCOs in the state um, is now required to have a health equity director. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that'd be a great person for you to uh, speak with next. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, with going through all of this stuff, uh, I take I usually take a moment and pause so that way you can catch your breath uh, and uh, ask Greg whatever questions on your mind with respect to um, this topic. So if you have something on your mind, I am happy to answer the question. Okay, well, what is your definition of health equity and what do you see as the ultimate goal in terms of um, conquering this issue? Well, yeah, so my health equity outcome definition is very simple, which is that, and it's very much aligned with what you stated. Uh, Everybody, every person needs to have the opportunity for the same clinical outcome based on their disease and disease process. And, you know, the simple fact of the matter is, you know, saying, well, everybody should have the, that means that we're really focused on outcomes. And as physicians, that's why I know that's why I got into healthcare was, look, I I just want to make people better. And that definition of better is defined by whatever your disease process, right? We have diseases that we don't have cures for, but you can live longer. We have disease, you know, we have disease processes that are chronic, but, you know, there are outcomes of non-hospitalization, all, you know, what other comorbidities that get associated with this. And, you know, I express here regularly, it's um, devastating to me that we have been talking, discussing the same poor clinical outcomes <laughs> for so many, you know, you mentioned um, morbidity and mortality associated to um, maternal fetal medicine. Mm-hmm. We've been discussing that for 60 years. 
that there have been improvements. But the crazy part, particularly for African-American women, is that literally the the outcomes came down, but the delta between black women outcomes and the rest of the population remained the same, mm-hmm. even as the uh, all sort of outcomes got better. So everybody's like, oh, things got better. Well, they did. But the difference between those two populations right. didn't change. So That's something right. else is going on. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just reading earlier, you know, with um, about. Uh, you know, we had a discussion about mental health equity uh, in some previous episodes, but one of the the things that that came out, the more that I've been digging into that, is looking at not only with black patients, but with Asian and Asian Pacific patients. Mental health disparities are continuing to exist, and the more that you're digging into this, you're realizing we aren't, we are continuing to perpetuate health inequity. And what I'm most interested in, sort of the ideal outcome, getting into the second part of your question, is um, every health system, and quite honestly, you know, through this podcast, every individual has an opportunity to, A, recognize that the problem exists, but more importantly, B, is what are we doing to immediately start collapsing, you know, these, you know, whatever that health inequity is. We can't attack everything. But if everybody is gets involved in terms of tr- addressing something, then now we're going to start making a meaningful difference. Yeah. Answer. Great answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get I, I I get excited. Poor Jay has to to sit through and, and listen to me, um, uh, you know, rail at the wind and figure out what we're what we're going to do to be able to fix uh, fix specific items. Well, I also create some additional time for Jay to make sure that he's asking some additional questions. He's jumped in because he, he usually gets excited and he's also somewhat shy because he says like, oh, well, it's hosted by Greg Johnson. But the simple fact is that Joe Jay is as much uh, a co-host as, uh, and as he is a producer and a project manager. So what's on your mind, Jay? Well, you know, first thing I'll say is definitely I, I, I don't get bored when, when you do talk about this, Greg. I think I, I came into this the DEI work really knowing it's important, but not having any clue what was going on. I think every episode, every project we work on, it's, it's been eye opening um, to understand this issue a little bit better. Um, but I'm but Dr. Emery, I guess what I'm really interested in is um, a little bit on the on the state side and understanding really like you know, Illinois is my home state too. So, so I guess there's a little bit of me being proud hearing hearing um, you sharing about it. But I'm really wondering, like, from the the side of like the decision makers, the politicians, is it really? Do you feel like there's really like a buy-in, and you're able to help move the needle, or is it a lot of having to convince them? Because you know, on other episodes when I've asked questions, I've I'll share a lot of times when I hear people respond to DEI. There's a lot of Kind of cynicism, a lot of you know, their assumption is this tokenism. It's just simply kind of like the the woke thing to do now. Um, and I'm just wondering, is it is that same issues you you feel in in politics and in legislation, or do you feel like there's a little bit more um, of, a, of a buy-in and belief in it? Yeah, no, I would say in Illinois, there's a lot of buy-in and belief in it. Um, and in fact, I think the state leads in this way. You know, it's not really us trying to convince them. They lead us and tell us, you know, we expect this. We expect, you know, health equity outcomes pretty much in everything you do. Um, and I think another reason is that, you know, in our state, we have a very strong uh, Black caucus. Um, and they lead a lot of legislation having to do with health equity. This past um 
session, there was there were you know very major um, efforts made, and, and even maternal mortality was addressed during during that session. So if you look up the legislation from this last um, session, you'll be really impressed. Um, actually, the award that I got last week, I um, was at the table with one of our state senators, and she um, talked about that as well. So she was the one leading the way on a lot of these initiatives. Um, and so, you know, very, very proud again of the state. And I, I honestly believe that um, they are very sincere in um, their, uh, you know, expectations of of us as as payers to advance health equity in the state and and of providers. You know, I think they they know that this is something that has to be done, um, and it be a joint effort. You know, on all of our parts and everyone having uh, to do with healthcare and touching healthcare. So. Um, again, you know, go Illinois because, uh, you know, a lot of states, <laughs> they're still battling like really simple, um, you know, principles of advancing health equity. And I think um, Illinois is way ahead of the game. Thank you so much. That's that's awesome to hear. I, I guess sometimes it feels a little discouraging when you when you just see kind of the, the population, their response. And so it just feels like is it just, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard not to be cynical with some of mm -hmm. these things. So it, yeah. it's just awesome to hear that, you know, some of the leaders, at least in some of the states are really believing this and, and trying to champion it. So, oh, yeah. so I'm really encouraged. So we, we're obviously touching on a variety of different topics. And, um, but one of the, the items that we also have spent a fair amount of time discussing is the issue of representation um, mm -hmm. in, in medicine and in roles. And so I think, um, I would love to hear from you uh, what you share with um, those who I say behind, I say they're really behind in age. <laughs> they're just yeah. earlier in careers. But what do you share with um, with with folks who are looking at healthcare or saying, I don't know if I can do that. She's doing so much and and uh, you know, that's not me. Yeah. Well, um, and let's see, it's hard to say. Well, okay, so uh, another thing I'm doing coming up in a few weeks is a panel um, with a foundation called I Am Able. And it's a really um, wonderful foundation. You might want to look it up, um, but it's spelled A-B-E-L, I Am Able. Um, but they train and prepare students in high school and college, you know, students of color who are interested in medicine. Um, and it's run by a, a very dynamic doctor, Dr. Sweetie Conway. You may look her up too. Um, but she uh, is really an inspiration because I think, you know, the fact that there are so few of us now in medicine, um, you know, again, is an opportunity. And and again, you know, with more people um, of color and, you know, diversity at the table, um, we're able to get different perspectives. And, um, you know, even when we think of, for instance, as a health when we think of different initiatives, you know, it's great when we have uh, such a diverse staff because people come up with things that we may not have thought of, you know, things, places we may need to go and, you know, where we can educate people that um, we hadn't hadn't even thought of. So, you know, all voices are welcome in terms of, um, you know, collaboration in these um, population health initiatives because we often discover things that, you know, we wouldn't have thought of because we're not a member of that community, for instance. Um, but anyway, going back to this foundation. So that's one of the things I'm going to be speaking about um, actually at Rush, so which is where I trained. Um, in a few weeks, um, and I, I'll be on a panel um, with some other um, members of the MCO community as well. Um, but we 
will be speaking to that. You know, we'll be speaking to the fact that, you know, for instance, in high school and in college, you have to be, of course, very prepared because um, it's very competitive. I think it's Greg probably even more competitive than we when we went to medical <laughs> school in terms of, you know, getting into medical school um, nowadays. Um, you know, I, I think things have changed in terms of diversity. I think, you know, potentially it may be more diverse um, in medical school, but the problem is we had a lot of people that would get into medical school, but wouldn't necessarily finish. And I remember that, um, you know, coming through UIC that, you know, a lot of our classmates weren't with us when we when we finished. Um, so I think there has to be support. So something like the I Am Able Foundation, which supports them actually all the way through medical school um, in terms of uh, test preparation, you know, because of course we have um, lots and lots, lots of testing that we have to go through. Um, with boards, the different step, you know, USMLE tests, um, even the MCAT, you know, all the way back to the MCAT. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of preparation that yeah. that has to um, go into taking those tests. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't realize that when they when they first start out. And, you know, so it's a, it's a commitment. Um, the other thing is, I think um, there has to be more visibility of those of us who are in medicine now. You know, again, you can't be what you can't see. Um, and so I um, myself do uh, mentor, you know, some students, um, you know, both high school and um, college who are interested in medicine. And sometimes, you know, that involves them figuring out that's not what they want to do. Right. You know, they, they, they say, oh, you know what, I, I don't think I want to do this after all. And that's fine. You know, I mean, that's a great, it's a great way to, um, it's a great thing to figure out early that you, in fact, don't want to go through it because it's a right. lot of money. It's, you know, a lot of loans for most of us. And, um, you know, it's a it's a long, long road. Um, and a, it's a lot of sacrifice in terms of studying. I know, Greg, I think you and I were pretty nerdy in college. We didn't go to a lot of the, <laughs> the parties <laughs> and things because we had to, you know, study. We, we were, we were pre-med, you know, we were on the pre-med track. So we couldn't do all that partying. So anyway, um, so yeah, so I, I I'm realistic when I talk to uh, younger people interested in medicine and tell them you know the sort of things that they'd be giving up. Um, but I'm also I also try to be hopeful. You know, so one of the things I tell them is that the great thing about medicine is that there are so many different routes you can take. You know, there, right. not only are there so many different specialties, but even once you finish, like look at me. You know, I was a practicing primary care physician, and then I decided, okay, let you know time for a change. And so I decided to go into administration and then, you know, was able to have a, a larger impact on more people. So, um, you know, there's so many different routes that you can take. And I know a lot of physicians now, especially who are frustrated with clinical medicine, are um, getting out and going into non-clinical positions um, with pharmaceutical companies, you know, with insurers. Um, you know, so there are a lot of different things you, you can do with it. Research, you know, academia. I have a lot of friends who are in academia. Um, and even, um, you know, government, so um, NIH and CDC and things like that. Um, so anyway, it's a, it's still a great field, a great career. It, it just is very, very competitive now. And it's uh, a big commitment and a lot of work. Oh, it's you, you're right. And I think that you're right. People figuring out um, mentorship is sometimes figuring out what not to do as much as it is what to do. But I think you, you're right. Uh, we see it time and time again, recognizing that um, 
you know, I, I joke now, I've got a nerdy podcast, but um, <laughs> the, the simple fact of the matter is that there uh, are rewards at the end in terms of uh, the impact that you can have on people's health, either through yeah. direct patient care or very similar to what you do. Great. Oh, another question here, kind of, uh, not even kind of, but about mentorship and, and Greg, maybe you go weigh in as well, but is, as you said, Dr. Emery, that you sometimes mentor high school students and college students. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I look back at, at where I was at that time. So how would like an 18 or a 22 year old even find, you know, either one of you as, as mentors? Like, how do they reach out? I know at that time, you know, chief medical officer was not in my social network, wasn't in my like parents network <laughs> either. So I'm just wondering how does someone make What do you mean, Jay? <laughs> what? No. Um, so actually, so some of the students that I mentor are, you know, um, friends, you know, children who are interested um, in going into medicine, to your point, you know, so they didn't actually find me through LinkedIn or anything. But also, again, through the I Am Able Foundation, they have mentorship programs, um, th again, that are key to bringing together, you know, the, these students with um, those of us who are in health care already. So um, there are other organizations, like I think the National Medical Foundation is another great one that um, sponsors, you know, students of color. And I think they give scholarship. I know they give scholarships and things like that. And I think they do have a mentoring program as well. So there are a lot of um, organizations actually out there that um, are doing uh, mentorship programs, which is great. Yeah, I wish I had that. I mean, I had my uncle, my great uncle, um, but that was a little different. You know, um, it would be nice to have um, had someone, especially a woman in medicine. I think that would have been nice to really understand what it's like to you know, raise a family and, you know, all that in the midst of a medical career, which nobody really tells you about, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes. So. Yeah, no, it, it is challenging. And, and you're right, Jay, you know, figuring out, I know my approach is, is not really dissimilar from what uh, Lakshmi shared, which is I am, uh, you know, I find groups that work with, um, uh, with youth uh, in the the greater Houston area, so you know, I've my kids have been involved in the Leaders of Tomorrow, um, you know, that's associated with um, uh, the National Black MBA uh, Association. Um, I look for as many other uh, opportunities to sort of say, hey, just where 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 are kids, right? Like they're right, right. they're everywhere, and they've got a whole bunch of uh, other items. And you know, yeah. looking at the schools and just saying, okay, well, you know, the schools down the street. You know, do you need you know do you need somebody to come and talk to the kids? Yeah. Uh, you know, for a single day, that's that's relatively easy. And so I know for me, you know, thinking about like, okay, well, these are high school kids you know, college age kids, there are, you know, a variety of pre-med associations, Lakshmi and I joke, but because we formed a black pre-health organization at Dartmouth because we were just like, there's nobody here, so somebody, right. <laughs> somebody better it. talk to us. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then it's easier for for the 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 students who are actually in uh, medicine and residency because then you have your state medical associations and um, and and other things like that. So it's not. Uh, you know, it's some of it is on the individual, but you know, also just. You know, where are people and where are people involved? Because there's there are tons of different uh, ways that you can, you, you know, you can get involved and, and find the kids. And a lot so. of people, I was thinking, you know, a lot of people reach out through the schools. Like I know I've done like health fair, you know, judged health fairs and um, or science fairs rather at schools and um, done it that way. I've been on a panel for the past few years at um, my daughter's, you know, old high school um, where they have a, um, a, a black 
men's mentoring program, but I don't know, they had me on the panel too. Um, and so they have a panel of physicians, you know, in the community. And so we all speak to them every year, you know, the ones that are interested in healthcare. Um, Jack and Jill of America, that's another organization um, I was in or am in. And um, so that's, those are the friends, you know, children who are interested. So there are a few of us that are physicians in that group and we'll either have a, um, an activity where we talk about being a physician, you know, for the younger kids and how you become a doctor, things like that. Um, or yeah. even through um, links. I'm in another organization called the links and we do a STEM fair every year. And I talk to the kids about uh, becoming a physician. So we try to get out there and show our faces and, um, you know, become a resource for people. Oh, that's that's awesome, and and thank you. And like me, I was waiting for you. We made we had a, a, another uh, guest, and absolutely had to give their uh, Greek organization a shout oh. out. So I was just like, "Well, I'm not Greek, but you know, I'm doing, <laughs> I'm a social organization." <laughs> I was like sitting there going, "Everybody was like, oh, I was like, oh no, I'm gonna have to hear about that later too." So, um. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much. I, I know that I promised you that we would get you out on time because you do have such a busy schedule and, and everything else that's gone on. Um, so incredibly proud of the work that you've done and uh, happy to, to see, uh, to reconnect with you and, and uh, hear everything. And, uh, and don't be surprised if we ask you back, because I think that we started down the payer road, but there's so much more to, to have in terms of discussions oh, yeah. there. So. So um, with that, uh, we'll thank you for your time and thank those who have listened. And we will check in with you in uh, a subsequent episode. Great. Thanks so well, much. Actually, Greg, yeah. before, before you end, you're, you're missing uh, how we typically end. I know, um, Dr. Emery, you, oh, you yeah. did tell us uh, a recommendation oh. on who you would like on the podcast. But if, oh, if there are any other names or if there's any other topics that you would, you would, Jay, you would love for Jay us to is Jay okay. is always on the money and always on point. Okay, I have two names. So the one first is um, Sean Trotter, it's S-H-A-A-N Trotter, and he's our health equity director uh, at Nevada Health of Illinois. Um, so I think he'd be a great person to speak with. And then um, Dr. Uh, Janae Caldoun, who is um, the chief uh, health equity director for CVS, which is the parent company of Aetna. Um, and her name is spelled J-O-N-E-I-J, or excuse me, J-O-N, E-I-G-H, and her last name is K-H-A-L-D-U-N. So you may look her up, um, and she would be a wonderful person to speak with as well. All right, great. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.